Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. I'm so glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. Those out here and those of you at home, and I just want to wish you a happy Mother's Day from one mother to another. And I know the kind of year we have had this last year, and I know all of the hats that you have worn. So um, you are to be celebrated today. Um, and speaking of this last year, so in March, um, Dave had been making us more familiar with this hymn, This Is My Father's World, um, when everything shut down and I had a retreat coming up and, and it went virtual. And so we shot like outside in my backyard um, a, a little worship video with this song. And I just remember having a moment with the Lord and him just meeting me um, as the birds were singing and even a little storm when some white rain came through. And I just felt like he was just reminding me, I'm sovereign world and it is mine and so let's sing this song together and remember that that the world may feel like chaos but we have him and he is he is caring for it the smallest of creatures and so he'll care for us this is my father's world and to
Good morning, church family. Wow. Are we ready this morning? My name is Clark, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And we're privileged to be able to celebrate with you on this Mother's Day. This is Margot Bonishball, and she serves and leads and shepherds all things women's ministry here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and we're excited to be with you this morning. If you're watching on our live stream, welcome to you as well on this Mother's Day. And uh, wanted to celebrate something. Some of you, uh, it, this may be a fun fact for you, but did you know that five years ago on this date was our first Sunday, Matt, here at Fellowship Fayetteville? Yeah. So I thought it might be kind of cool to see if you were here on that day, could you just raise your hand? Okay. That's awesome. You know what's even more awesome is that those that didn't raise your hand, you are one of the reasons that we came here. And so we're grateful that you're here and that God has used um, his people and this church and his word and his spirit to transform you and to make you a follower of Jesus. And so uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. So that's something to celebrate, Margot. And uh, we're excited because um, next week, um, after we um, finish up, Celebrating Moms Today, Garland, we are going to jump into a deep dive of Hebrews together, and we're going to look at the majesty and the splendor and the wonderful uh, mercy of Jesus in our life, and uh, we wanted you to be aware of a resource that we have for you. Um, as you go out into the foyer, you can see this to your right or to your left, and it's a Hebrews um, guide for devotions, everything you need to know about Hebrews. It's got discussion questions. You can use it for your small groups, and uh, they're for $5, and so you can pick one of those up. Um, as you leave today. Well, Margot, there is a ton of good things going on in women's ministry, and we're going to celebrate some moms as well. So We are. We are. We are getting ready to start a study, June 8th. It is In His Image by Jen Wilkin, and it's what God calls us to reflect His character, and I'm super excited about it because I would like to reflect His character more. Um, but what we need you to do is we need you to register now because we want to make sure that we have enough leaders for all the women that are coming. And because it's Mother's Day, I want to tell you just a quick story about my mom, Jan Havens. She's not in here this morning. She is on video. Hi, Mom. Uh, she, I talk to her, I call her every morning on my way to work. And our conversation goes something like, hey, how you doing? And she'll go, I'm grateful, grateful for being alive. And if she doesn't say it in those first few minutes, she always weaves in, uh, I'm thankful for somebody or I'm grateful for something. And that is such a testament to me. And this is not something new for her. She has been doing this her entire life. So thank you, Mom, for encouraging me. When I grow up, I, I'd kind of like to be more like that. Um, let us pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the women that are represented here this morning. Thank you for the spiritual mothers um, that are represented in this church family. God, we love you. We want to reflect your character more. And Father God, we just trust. We trust this season that you have put us in. We love you. We want to keep our eyes on you. And in the precious name of Jesus, 
Good morning, fellowship. My name is Anne Defani, and I'm married to Jordan, and we have three awesome kids. We have our son, who's five, and we have twin girls, who are almost three, and fairly often I find myself thinking, apparently God thinks I am capable of this, of the silliness and the chaos and the messes and disciplining and discipling them um, to know Jesus. But more often, this is by the grace of God that I think of the lyrics of this next song. It says, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. And I think no matter what season of life you're in, if you're a, an empty nester, or maybe you're a mom of littles running around the house, or maybe your season looks totally different, we need Jesus. We all need him to carry us through the day, um, maybe through a given minute. So let's stand, let's sing this song together. Let's make this our breath prayer this week and beyond that Lord, we need you.
your faithfulness to us, God. May we not forget that on a daily basis, a momentary basis. Lord, remind us of our need for you. God, we love you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can grab a seat. Um, they were looking for the most uh, emotionally sensitive and encouraging person to give the Mother's Day talk. And those of you that don't know me, it's not as funny. But uh, obviously, felt to me, that would be describing me very well. I'm Garland. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Mother's Day to everybody in the room. Uh, my mom uh, on the live stream. Happy Mother's Day. I don't think she's in here. Y'all can clap for the moms. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a very afraid clap. Yes, it's Mother's Day. Um, so glad to be with y'all. Uh, I remember about four or five years ago, I was sitting in a class, and the class was going on and on about the way that verbs work in, in uh, the Hebrew language. I was in a Hebrew class in seminary, and I remember sitting in this class, and the professor's name was Dr. Webster, Brian Webster, and he was, it was pretty in the weeds, uh, and he kind of went on a rant, uh, look at the Hebrew verb in a particular spot. And I remember sitting in that class going, oh man, that's awesome. If I ever get to teach on Mother's Day, that's it. I'm taking that idea, and that's going to be the Mother's Day talk. And, and weirdly enough, a week and a half ago, uh, I went and had lunch with Nick Rowland, who is one of my friends. He teaches up on the Rogers campus. And uh, we were talking, and I said, so I'm teaching Mother's Day. And he goes, I am too. I said, okay, cool. Uh, I said, I'm going to talk on uh, that thing that Dr. Webster taught us a few years ago in class. He went, me too. And I said, uh, in class, I remember thinking, if I ever get Mother's Day, he went, me too. And so like five years ago, we both were in class, and we both were like, oh, if we only got to teach that one day. And we both got Mother's Day this year, and what we're going to be looking at is this ancient poem that we see. It's a famous poem in Proverbs chapter 31. Now, have you ever had that experience in life where something you always thought you've known turns out to be wrong? Or maybe something you were really familiar with, you, you found out more information, it turns out some of you what, you, what you thought you knew about it was a little bit off. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know why this was something I was told a lot growing up. Maybe you were as well. I was told if you ever go to New York and you go to the observation deck of the Empire State Building, if you were to drop a penny off the edge, that that penny would collect so much force because of gravity that it would fall all the way down and it would kill whoever it lands on below. Maybe this is something my parents told me because they thought I might do something like this. I don't know. This is, this is common knowledge. Um, there's a particular show that loves to take things we think we know and test it and discover if it's true or not. It's a show I like. It's called Mythbusters. And they went and tested this Empire State penny drop theory. You know what they found out? Totally false. It doesn't kill the They tested it. They didn't test it with people. That's like dummies and stuff. It doesn't kill the person below. It will certainly get your attention I think if you have a penny drop from 100 stories up, but it doesn't kill the person. And maybe this is just my, like my personality, but upon hearing that, I'm giving you permission. I gave myself permission. Next time you're in New York, just go up there, bag full of pennies, man, and just drop them off. Let's see what happens. I know I'm, a, I'm like a bad person because that was my first instinct upon hearing that. Uh, the second one is this. Another one is this. Um, they tested this. When you park your car, you got that 100-foot walk or whatever to the office door or to the restaurant or whatever it is, and it's raining. Should you walk or should you run? Proverbial wisdom says run, right? Because you're going to get there faster. You'll get less rain on you. 
Well, they tested this a bunch of different ways, and what they found is it's actually wrong. You get more wet by running to the door than you do by just walking. Let's assume you don't have an umbrella or you just get an umbrella, okay? So that, that proverbial wisdom is totally wrong, and yet we keep running, all of us, when we have that situation. I think what we're gonna see in Proverbs 31 is we get one little thing off, and I'll give you a personal example with this particular proverb, this particular section of Proverbs. Dr. Webster taught us this in class, and a lot of the things that, that I find interesting, my wife does not. Uh, in fact, most people don't. And so I went, to, I went home, and I said, I learned this really cool thing today. And uh, I was expecting her to kind of, you know, humor me a little bit and then just go, go talk to Roland. I don't, I don't want to, it's great, it's good for you, but I don't care. Um, but she was listening. And, and not only that, she was, she was like leaned, leaned in listening. And not only that, I looked up, I, I looked at her, you know, a few minutes into explaining and she had tears in her eyes. And I, I was, now I'm like, I don't know, am I, did I hurt her feeling? I don't know what I did, I, I did something. And uh, she finally said, she said, that changes everything about how I've read this little poem. It changes everything. I feel, I feel so relieved by that. So we're gonna, I'm calling this Recovering True Beauty. We're gonna look at this ancient poem, and here's gonna be our, our three points as we go. Let me commend you. If, you. if you showed up here today with your paper Bible and a notebook and a pen, let me commend you. If you got a note on your phone out where you take notes, let me commend you for that. When the Bible's taught to you, learn from it, write it down, take notes so you can reteach others, and because you're gonna forget 95% of what's said on this stage, all right? So write it down. So let me commend you if that's you. Here's our three points for you note takers along the way. Roman number one, two, and three will be these. First, we're gonna look at the surprise of biblical beauty in this section. Number two, the seduction of worldly beauty. And lastly, we're gonna unlock the source of true beauty. So the surprise of biblical beauty, and we'll explain why I'm calling it a surprise. Next, the seduction of worldly beauty, and last, the source of true beauty. Here's my hope. My hope would be that we can unlock the source and it would enable us to move from number two to number one. And it just might set you free this morning. That's my hope as we look at Proverbs chapter 31. If you have your Bible or phone or whatever you got, open it up to Proverbs chapter 31. We're gonna pick it up in verse 10. And here we go. This proverb begins this way. This, this series of Proverbs, it starts, this section starts like this. A wife of noble character, who can find? Some of you right now are like, I can't find her? Yeah, that's a great question. She is worth far more than rubies. Now here's a problem. We're just coming off of a freedom series, and we're about to start a Hebrew series next week. This is a standalone uh, talk here this morning, and anytime we just drop into the Bible kind of randomly and look at it, we're often out of context, and you gotta orient yourself. So let's figure out what's going on around this section. If you look up in your Bible, scroll up or look up, chapter 31 begins with a, a, a series of Proverbs, nine Proverbs, and they're, given to, they're, they're, they're sourced from King Lemuel, He's a non-Israelite king, and it even says in verse one that his mommy taught him, okay? So King Lemuel's Proverbs as taught to him by his mom. Now, almost all scholars agree that there's a break between verse nine and verse 10. In fact, most of your printed Bibles should be giving you that break now. And that begins a new section. And this is an ancient, anonymous poem. And what makes it really interesting is, that's why I put the text up here for the handful of nerds in the room that did a class in Hebrew or two, uh, it's an acrostic poem 
that begins with the first letter all the way down the Hebrew alphabet. So if you happened upon a poem in English and the first line of every one of the lines was an acrostic A, B, C, D, E, it's a literary device that's supposed to get your attention, okay? So it's made to be memorizable that way. So it's an acrostic, anonymous, unnamed, ancient poem. And that's what we're going to look at. Now, I want to read some of this poem for you. Let's get a picture. Let's get a snapshot of what this woman looks like. By the way, I recognize that some of you have done the work on this, and there are many scholars who think this is dedicated to wisdom personified. We're going to take the traditional approach and say we think this is written to a human wife. All right? And let's look at this human wife. Here it is. Verse 12. What's her, what does she do? Well, she brings her husband good, not harm. All the days of her life, she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. Okay, so she's, she's working. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. I guess she's busy. She gets up while it is still not. She's an early riser, provides food for her family. She considers a field and buys it. Okay, she's got real estate shops. She's, she has earnings, and she, from her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She can, she can farm. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. Well, they must be to do all this. She sees that her trading is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So she's up early in the morning and she's out late at night. Her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle. She can sew. She opens her arms to the poor. She cares about the poor. When it snows, she has no fear for she's made clothes for her children. Her husband is respected at the city gate. Okay, that's good. We want that. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sass. Okay, so now she has a, a linen garment business she's working. She's clothed with dignity and strength. She laughs at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and instruction is on her tongue. I don't know where she had time to learn that, how busy she is. She watches over the affairs of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Of course not. How could you with this day planner? Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but this woman surpasses them all. I'd say, wouldn't you? Now, let's just look at some of the, um, some of the, the standard that's being set here. Some of the difficulty here. Notice it. She gets up while it's still night, and her lamp does not go out at night. So which is it? Is she an early riser, or is she early to bed? She's or late to bed. She's both. She's burning the candle at both ends. Now, some of you are like, well, maybe she naps. Nah, she doesn't eat the bread of idleness. She ain't napping in there. Where's she going to get time to nap in that day? Because notice what she's doing. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. So she's, she's out in the marketplace. We saw, we saw that she's selling fabric to merchants, sashes. She, but she also watches over the affairs of her household. There's the line. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness. But on top of all of that, she also opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Maybe that's why this begins with this question. A wife of noble character like this? Who can find? I mean, anybody, anyone? Now, um, when Sarah began to explain why she teared up, she said, this proverb, I've, she, she grew up in the church in Missouri, and uh, she said, you know, I knew this proverb. I've been reading it since a young age. It was supposed to be motivating and inspiring, but all it ever did was create an impossible standard I could never meet. And I just felt, every time I read it, I felt guilty. Every time I read it, I felt like a failure. If this is the day planner of a godly woman, then I don't even measure up. In fact, I'm not even really close. 
And I've begun to, as she processed that with me, I've been begun to process that with uh, other women that I know in, in my life, and they had similar experiences. And maybe some of you were like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping if I could bat like 300 on that, for those of you that aren't sport, that'd be 30%, okay? Man, I hope I get 30% on that. Man, I don't feel like I'm doing hardly any of that. And I'm curious, if this is your first time hearing this, if maybe this is your first time uh, in a long time back in church or you're new, to, you're new to this whole Christianity thing, how does that land on you? Is it motivating or is it frightening? Is it inspiring or does it bring some kind of, some kind of shame almost? Like who could, who could measure up to that? If we look at Proverbs 31 as the day planner, the task list of a godly person, or in this case, a godly woman, it seems like an impossibly high standard. But what if we've gotten it just a little bit wrong? Now, there's a translation issue that we're gonna work on here, and uh, the, there's a, a Bible called the Net Bible. It's the Bible that Dallas Seminary produces. They've actually adjusted their translation in light of the conversation we're about to have. We, we have to do a little translation work, and to do that, we have to do a little bit of verb, Hebrew verb laboratory work, a little classroom time. Are you with me? That is pathetic. We are gonna do some Hebrew verb classroom time. Are you with me on that? All right. You are totally lying. You were just indulging me. I can sense it. You're like, get me to brunch, all right? Um, we gotta do a little work. Follow me here. It'll take 90 seconds. Um, in English, we use, by the way, verbs, are the action of sentences, my third grade, remember? Subject, and then the verb is the action that's, that's happening either to or from that subject, okay? The verb, in English, we encode time in our verb. We call it past, present, and, thank you, see? Past, present, and future. We encode time in our verb in English. And lots of languages do that. Uh, many languages do not, however. They don't encode time in their verbs. So for us, that's I ran yesterday, I run right now, or I will run tomorrow. We encode time. Many languages don't encode time in their verb. They do something a little bit different. And a lot of ancient languages, are, or Eastern languages especially so. Here's how the Hebrews use verbs, okay? So follow me here. There's two, we might call them main categories of verbs. One is called the imperfect verb. The imperfect verb does this. It sees the action of the subject in an ongoing manner, okay? Something that's ongoing, it's in progress. Therefore, the imperfect verb is a great verb to use for present tense things and future tense things because it's ongoing, it's in the present. There's another kind of Hebrew verb, it's called the perfect verb. The perfect verb is used to describe actions that are completed. From the perspective of the person using the verb, those things are finished, they're completed, they're done. Therefore, it's a great verb for things that are in the past tense because the action is viewed as completed. With me so far? Now, the translators of Proverbs 31 are translating all of those verbs about the woman in that present imperfect idea. Here's the problem. Almost all of the verbs in Proverbs 31 describing the activity of the, the excellent wife are in the perfect tense verb. Almost all of them are completed actions or past tense actions. Let's put a bow on this. What's the point? Let's get to the point here. Okay. If we see Proverbs 31 as the day planner, the ongoing task sheet for a godly person, 
then it sets an impossibly high standard that crushed my wife. However, if we let the verb tense be what is actually in the text, completed or past tense, then not a day planner, but here's your picture of Proverbs 31. It's a, it's a husband talking about his wife of 50 years and saying, probably to his son, and saying, over the long haul, this is what she did. She knew exactly what to do when the moment called for it. Hey, when we needed to buy a field, she considered, past tense, that field and bought it. Hey, and when we had our children, she managed, past tense, our household. She knew exactly what to do. When our crop didn't come in that year and we were running short on money and there's no social network and no social structures in the old, the old world, she, she began to make clothes and she made fabric and she made, uh, she made sashes and she sold them. She knew exactly the wise thing to do in the moment that called for it. When a global pandemic happened, she knew exactly the wise thing to do. It's a person looking back on the long haul of this person's life and saying, that, that's your mom. Now, you see the difference? It's very different. Um, here's the point. You're looking for someone that faithfully trusts the Lord. This is what it's telling you, Proverbs 31. Faithfully trust the Lord in exactly the season that you're in. That's godly wisdom. Fear the Lord. Faithfully trust the Lord. Trust and obey in exactly the season that you find yourself in. And over the long haul, what Proverbs 31 is saying, that is biblical beauty. It ends with this statement. It says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who faithfully trusts him day in and day out for the long haul is to be praised. That's the kind of beauty that we're after in the Bible. That's biblical beauty. And it's all over the Bible. Do you remember the story in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when Samuel is anointing a new king and he goes to Jesse, King David's father, and he says, you got some boys? One of them is supposed to be the king. Jesse goes and gets his oldest seven kids, parades them before Samuel. No, 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 no. And anybody watching that scene would be like, these boys have everything it takes. This is the standard of, of beauty and, and masculinity and, and handsome. They've got what it takes. Look at, them, look at their appearance, look. And in, this, in that scene, Samuel says this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God of Israel, he looks at the heart. It's the surprise of biblical beauty that we are pushing through the mere external and that Yahweh says, I am looking at your character over the long haul. Do you trust me over the long haul? Here's why I call that a surprise. I bet right now, even if you're not a Jesus follower in the room, you're like, yeah, I learned that when I was in kindergarten. Don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, I get all that. We got a lot of songs being written about this now. I, I see it. The reason I call it a surprise is because that standard of beauty, this faithful trust in the Lord, is exactly opposite of how our culture de describes beauty. It's the exact opposite. For us in our culture, in our world, the Western culture, we view beauty exclusively by the external. How, what's your, what is your appearance? How thin 
are you? Uh, how attractive are you? We, we view it on hair and style and makeup and muscles and body and things like that. And it may not just be those physical things. It may be other external things like coming from the right family or money or power or connections or a quick wit, charm, those kind of external things. And there's a warning in this proverb. It's deceptive. It's seductive. It'll pull you in and you won't even know it. Don't believe me? Just watch how we choose mates, spouses, in the Western American culture. Just look around. Watch how we do it. The way that we choose mates will evidence that we have fallen victim, fallen prey to the seductive power of the world standard of beauty. I read an article last week that on Hinge, Hinge is one of these uh, dating websites. What happened here? I'm all, out, I'm all over the place. Kobe, bring me back. There we go. Hinge is one of these dating websites, and uh, this is an interesting statistic that was, uh, I read in an article last week. So uh, on Hinge, it's a dating website, and by the way, I've had the joy and privilege of getting to pastor college students and young adults for the last several years. And I get, I get to watch how they sort of look into the world to choose their spouse, their mate. And Hinge, I think, bears this out perfectly. 60%, follow the, follow the statistic, 60% of the, the likes or the swipes, I don't know how exactly it works, 60% of those hits go to just 10% of the men. And, over, and almost 50% of those likes or hits go to just 10% of the women. So that means the top 10% of the men and the women on this dating site get over half of the clicks and the follows. Now, why do you think that is? You think everybody's going through there with a fine-tooth comb and the biographical information looking for character? <laughs> That's what they're doing? Not at all. You know what it's based on? The picture, the external. Here's how we do dating. Here's how we, we choose a spouse. And, and I'm, I'm commenting on the young people because I don't want to shame anybody else, all right? Here's how I'm watching this happen. We eliminate 80% of the population right off the bat. Not attractive enough. All by the externals. And by the way, of that 80%, when you're looking out there, there might be some amazing spouses in that 80%. And then what's left is this 20% of the ones we deem externally good-looking enough or charming enough. Then what we do is we look and don't... Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You look at that 20%, you see one that you know, and you go, good-looking person, okay. Here's what we do. We go, Lord, I just hope they have an ounce of character. <laughs> Would they just say the word God, and I'll call it good. They're a Christian. They just say, God, I'll take it. I'm not wrong. Is how we approach finding uh, a spouse. And there's a warning coming in this proverb. It's deceptive. It's fleeting. It'll fool you. And this focus on the externals is the root of so much of the comparison, the anxiety, the worry. Eating disorders since uh, uh, television has come on have skyrocketed. Eating disorders, the, the fear that we have, the looking at ourselves and seeing only the comparing with others and the things that we, where we fail to compare, it is the cause of that anxiety. And by the way, technology has made this so much worse, has it not? 
We are bombarded every single day with the world's standard of beauty. You can't avoid it. It's on our social media, it's on your TV, it's in your movies, it's on billboards. This is the standard of beauty. Must, you must meet it. We're bombarded with it. And it's exclusively based on the, those external things. This is especially difficult on young people, your kids, my kids. You know what I've noticed? It's especially difficult on people as they age. Because that standard isn't getting older, is it? It doesn't change. I think some of the affairs that we see in our world are because the people will begin to age, your spouse begins to age, and you go, the standard didn't change, I want that. And we're seeing this in our culture. It's the root, one of the roots of so much of this anxiety and fear and comparison that we experience. Now, some of you may be going, no, 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 Garland, uh-uh. I, I don't care about the external, the external appearance. I don't look at that. I'm, I'm deeper than that. I'm not that shallow. And, and I'll grant that. There may be some of you in the room. But oh, it's so seductive. Maybe for you, I'll, get, I'll grant it, maybe you are immune to looking at the physical appearance of the person. But what about these other external things? Their connections, their political savviness, their charm, their money. They come from the right family. Those are, you know, most all those are just external things. They couldn't help where they were born, the family they were born into. They're, they're a good one. It's so deceptive. And so much of the hurt and the brokenness that we see in not only at a micro but a macro level in our world is caused by our refusal to value the internal and be seduced by the external. We're seeing it all over our world. Now, here's my, here's, here's my hope. Here's what I hope to get to at this point. My hope is, whether you're a Jesus follower in the room or you're not a Jesus follower in the room, that you're going, okay, okay, I want number one. I want to live that way. I want that kind of beauty, that version of beauty. Man, I'm tired of the way that this world kind of pulls us into that trap, and I feel that. I feel that comparison. I feel that anxiety. I've, I've had that experience. I've been seduced by it, and, and my, my fear would be this. Right now, you may be sitting there and, and going, okay, I think I get it, I think I get it. I, I, wanna, I wanna value character more and integrity more than external things. And I want my kids to value that more. That's great. I'm glad we did Proverbs 31 today. Let's move on. Uh, I'm gonna work harder on character. I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna be a more moral person. I'm gonna have better integrity and make sure my kids have it. We're never talking about external things again. We're only talking about internal things. And if you leave here, and that's, is that, that's what you do, you will fail. That is not the source of true beauty. That's not gonna set you free. In fact, to the extent that you fail, you may shame yourself for that. Fell right back into it. What unlocks it? What unlocks living this kind of beauty out? The Jews, we're gonna go back in history, the Jews, about 200 years before Jesus' ministry, found themselves in a similar spot. They were hard-pressed by their culture. For them, it was the Greek culture putting its influence in the Jewish people. And they find themselves exiles in their own land with these oppressors who are ru ruling over them. And they're saying, We've, we're here because we failed to attain wisdom. We need 
wisdom. We must let's focus on the internals. Let's go after character and wisdom and integrity. Let's grasp it. We need it. And they were so obsessed with this idea of focusing on their character and living rightly that they even wrote page after page after page describing this. And some of those pages have fallen to us now. And they, they, they go so far as to personify wisdom and have her speak to you. This is coming from around 175 B.C. It's called the Wisdom of Ben Sirach. Don't freak out. All right, here's what they said. Wisdom speaks in this ancient poem, and it says this. Hey, come to me. Draw near to me, you who are uneducated, lowly, and lodge in the house of instruction. Come here and grab it. Acquire wisdom for yourselves without money. Put your neck under her yoke and let, her, let your souls receive instruction from her. Learn from her. See with your own eyes that I have labored but little and have found for myself much serenity. Ah, rest. The Jews of the 200 years before Jesus said, if we can just work harder to get wisdom and bring it down, then we'll be set free. And the problem is, they failed. It's almost like they never could grab her. It was never close enough for them. It was always elusive. And if you walk out of here and go, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work hard to be a wise person, a good person, a character person. Then it'll probably do the same for you. So what unlocks it? Do these words sound familiar? Church people, probably they do. If you've been around Jesus, about 200 years after this, he'll, he'll see a crowd, and this crowd is made up of largely Jews who still find themselves struggling there. And he says, don't, don't go to wisdom. He says, come to me. I'm the source of true wisdom. I'm the source of this life to the full. I'm the thing that will set you free. Come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I will give you ah, rest. Take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke? You would take a, it was an instrument that went around one ox. You want to plow your fields. It's easier to do it with oxen. Take this wooden instrument, put it over one of the ox, and then take the other ox who knows how to walk in a straight line, and you tether it to that one. This one will train the other ox how to walk a straight line. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, follow me, understand me, listen to me. By the way, you're gonna have to read your Bible to do that every day. Not so you can earn God's appreciation of you and approval for you. So you can learn. Man, I wanna be set free. Jesus, show me. This is because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest. You'll find a true joy, a true beauty that will never leave you. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can he make that last statement? Jesus will take all of that guilt and shame and comparison and brokenness, all the wounds and the hurt. By the way, we call that sin in, our, in the church. And he will take that on himself on a cross so that we might receive from him the way of life. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, man, he said, he said this so profoundly. I just want you to see it. It's nearly 500 years old, these words. He said, God's love does not love that which is worthy of being loved. Let's say it a different way. 
God doesn't look around and say, show me the pretty ones, the ones with great character, the ones who've cleaned themselves up enough, bring them to me. Oh, and by the way, the charming ones from the good stock, the good family. Ah, these I love. No, 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 no. He doesn't love that which is worthy of being loved. He creates that which is worthy of being loved. All that language in the New Testament that Paul will use, he makes us holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He beautifies us. The cross takes our sin and he defeats it there. He takes it on himself in his resurrection. New life has come. Don't you see? We come to him and then he sets us free. It's the source of our beauty. It's the source of our value. You come to him and learn from it. It just might set you free. Let's pray. Father, we look to you for you have sent your son into this world and he went towards that cross taking on himself the weight of the shame and the pain of this world and in so doing he forgives us and in his resurrection he ushers in new life into this world and he beautifies us and to the extent that we can grasp that it very well might set us free. So Jesus, we pray that we would be a people who come to you and find rest for our souls. So Jesus, now we do just that. You are our king, you are our shepherd, you're the one who beautifies us. We run to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.
biblical beauty? It's a life that faithfully trusts the Lord over the long haul. It's the internal strength in that and the toughness in that and the grit in that. And the only way we get it is by running to the altar, seeing that everything we have, we have in him, that he's cleaned us, he's cleansed us, he's made us holy and blameless in the sight of God. Man, what could the world offer? So we live in that confidence. We walk in that confidence today. Think of a way to honor your mom today. It's Mother's Day, after all. We love y'all. We'll see you next week. If you need prayer to your, to your right, right through those doors, we would love to pray with you. Love you, Fellowship Fable. Have a great week.